0: Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I am Pelin keskin Liu, a producer and writer.
1: I'm Jenny Jijong, a culture writer and critic, and this (sighs) week, I don't know why we have that sort of intonation, but anyway, we'll go with it. I'm feeling feeling bravado today. Okay, Okay, sure, we'll own it, Uh, which is actually fitting because this week we have a very special episode for you. We are doing our top Seven films, respectively, just of of all time in general. And the reason we're doing this instead of a regular episode today is because it's our one hundredth episode in the entire history oh my God. of this podcast.
0: First of all, how time flies, and secondly, <laughs> like I feel like we've done more at the same time.
1: I it's know just... it's it's kind of like so we have been doing this. If you'll allow us to reminisce for a moment, we have been doing this since the fall of twenty twenty. We are here in the spring of 2023. You would think that we'd be a little bit further along, but actually 100 episodes is like kind of a a, a big deal, which is we're yeah. like a centennial or I, I don't know what the proper term is, but it's it's wild that we have been around to make it to a full 100.
0: Our little pandemic baby is all grown up.
1: Yeah, and, grown up, and crusty, and old, now. aging, wrinkled um, and beautiful yeah, no matter yeah. what.
0: Yeah, exactly. Honestly, I'm pr- I'm proud of 100. I think, you know, we try and take time where we can, but the fact that we've committed to this makes me really happy and it makes me happy that I'm doing it with you. Yeah. If you allow me to get sentimental.
1: Yeah, we we're we're going to allow ourselves this. And and please again, thank you all for bearing with us and thank you all um of course got to thank Pellin. This is her baby and well, she's the one who really pushed for this podcast to happen. Not to say I was like sort of an unwilling participant but it's a lot of the genius the seed of it came from helen um so that is really all the credit to her and her editing week to week which is also a bigger thing than i i think a lot of people realize well at the same time i think
0: we both had a shared idea of what it is that we wanted for this and we both secretly wanted to get rich quick
1: yeah um, that hasn't really a couple years the, the, i don't think that's gonna pan out so much but um we are not maybe, calling i'm daddy, still holding out hope i'm still i'm, I'm still sure. holding out
0: hope on uh
1: saying maybe, maybe we need to pivot to video podcasts and, and get spotify's <laughs> attention there
0: but I, I don't Twitch. think don't hold your
1: breath for that oh my god um but
0: no i mean at the same time like straight up this wouldn't have happened if if you weren't here uh, on this earth and in the same room with me in the office of Vox Media once upon a time ago.
1: Yeah, thank you Vox Media for complaining. Um, yeah, for complaining this, about
0: <laughs> this yeah, thank you. Thanks Jim Bankoff. Um no <laughs> for for complaining about the state of podcasting and how we can't really find any you know, proper podcast from the perspective told from, you know, from our perspective. And I, I still think that we have the most correct opinions out of anyone in the podcasting sure, space. Sure, of so. course.
1: Um, and before we yeah. move on, just one, one last thank you to all of you who are listening to this. Yeah. Obviously, you know, we might've just been shouting out to the void anyway, regardless, but having people at the other end of this audio journey has definitely helped keep us going and just everyone's support when you yeah. email us, when you tweet at us, when you emoji react our Instagram stories, like any of it, it's just like yeah. a small bit of serotonin and reason to keep going. Uh, and especially when yeah. we, when you leave a nice review, we really love oh my when God, people yeah, we do love that. leave a nice little five star, even four star, if, if you're feeling that yeah. way, to be honest, but we love a five. Um, yeah, so we do. this is sort of the call to action. If you are still listening to this podcast, even if this is your first time, or you've been with us for months or years now, and you haven't left a review or a rating, uh, we would love that. Now, I guess to get into our top seven, um, we do have a, a, a few disclaimers just at the top of this. Just, of course, you you already know the drill. This is an, our personal, subjective opinion for for top films or favorite films. You can use it interchangeably. Don't come for us because this is just what we think and I'm going to speak for myself when I say I definitely don't have a very wide breadth of film knowledge especially film before I'd say maybe the last 10 years or so so yeah it's just like this is what we're working with and I hope that you will accept that into your hearts
0: yeah and the disclaimer for me is that this was so fucking hard to do and I have a really really long list of my favorite films in no particular order and if you guys want that, let me know. I will send it to you. I will post it somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but and we're also we tried um, our
1: best. Yeah, we tried our best. <laughs> and we're also not doing this in any particular order. So we're not going strictly from like yeah. one to seven or seven to one. It's all you know how we work. We don't like to rank things that much. It's kind of hard no. for us, to be honest. So yeah, it's it just take this all as sort of uh, this this nebulous void of here's a list of some of the things we saw in cinemas or, yeah. you know, movies that we just really, really love. And here's why. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah. without right. further ado, I think we should just get into it. Um, yes. Pellan, how about you kick us off? Take us to one of your top seven films of all time. Oh
0: my god. Okay, so I'm going to start off with Afterlife by Hirokazu kore if you know Eda, we have talked about some of his films previously on this podcast, but this is one of his first, like one of the early days. And I'm just going to read out the Google uh logline for all of these films just to make it easier. And then I'll get into like why I love it a little bit. Um So this film tells a story of a group of people who have recently died, finding themselves in a limbo realm resembling a relatively mundane building Counselors, including Takashi, played by Aratu Iura, and Shiori, played by Erika Oda, are on hand to help new arrivals pick one memory from their lives to bring with them into eternity. Once the memories are chosen, the staff make a short film representing each one, and the films make up a collage of thoughtful cinematic moments. Mm. So very odd premise because there's a like a little bit of surrealism involved but it looks very real so it reminds me a lot of like if you liked eternal sunshine of a spotless mind i would Mm -hmm. recommend this because it has that same element of like it looks like our world but it obviously isn't because the rules of the world within the film are so outside the realm of reality Mm -hmm. if that makes sense but i love this film because i think it tells us something about life like a life lived what that means told from the perspective of someone that has died how we pick memories and like what that tells us about the type of life that we led and the, the type of person that we are um it's just like a really like quiet but devastating film um and the first time i saw it i was just like a i've never seen anything like this and b there's just something that it leaves you with both, like, happiness and sorrow mm-hmm. in a weird way. Um,
1: yeah, the best feeling, so I, honestly.
0: Yeah, yeah, truly. Um, I, I will say, like, just from the top of this, I noticed a trend in the types of films that I picked, and a lot of them were, like, either doing something different to form uh in terms of like the film format structure or they were trying to say something deeply profound about like life or creativity or gender um so this is this is one of the ones where it says something like very profound about like life um and and death too obviously all right over to you jenny
1: all right i will kick it off with spirited away by hayao miyazaki of studio ghibli yeah. this is the yeah. film in 2001 uh that I think really cemented a lot of people's love for studio Ghibli or people coming back to re- revisit Hayao Miyazaki's work afterward. This is just one of the top films. Uh, the premise is Chihiro, who is a sullen 10 year old girl moving to a new town. She comes across an abandoned amusement park with her parents and through a series of mishaps, finds herself trapped in this spirit world. And she has to find a way to save her parents and get out again. That seems like a very simple or sort of children's story or YA premise, but this is a movie like many of Hayao Mikazaki's works and many of Studio Ghibli's works that is made for children, but it is also so good at speaking to adults as well and really universal Mm -hmm. in the audience, truly. I saw this when I was maybe 12 or, you know, I was a young girl. I was like not far off from Chihiro's age and throughout Mm -hmm. time just like viewing this over and over and over again it's really stuck with me so much
0: yeah there is like it
1: epitomizes like some of uh miyazaki's work in that in adult worlds that that's also like a childlike fantastical world through the viewpoint of a child and the sort of innocence and purity that that bestows upon this viewpoint and it's fundamentally like a optimistic, or if not optimistic, then at least not a cynical point of view about the world. Like yeah. the people who are yeah. bad are really not villains. Um, they're not totally bad. Like the people who are seem ordinary or who seem like brash or short tempered, like they all have a really kind or gentle or heroic side to them. It's just like a very yeah. s- like idyllic view of the world while also not shying away from The things that can scare a child. And I just, I love the setting so much. Like this, the idea of the spirit world working in hints of like Japanese mythology and fairy tale. It's just one of the most beautiful films, I think, in the world, honestly. And I really love it a lot.
0: It's really like a, a perfect case of world building and detail, you know, which is like why Miyazaki's films are so incredible. And also like the takeaway being quite matter of fact. You know, it doesn't talk down to children as a children's movie. It's Mm-mm. so, yeah, it's beautiful. This is one of my favorite films, too. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. All right. Now over to you, Pellin.
0: What's next for you? All right. So next up it is called Close Up. It's a film by the director Abbas Kiristami. I'm just going to read the logline of this and then we, I'll get into the details. Mm-hmm. Um, while reading a novel by Iranian director Mohsen Mah- Malbaf on the bus, um, Ali Sabzian strikes up a conversation with a pretty girl and when she tells him her family admires Macbeth's work, Ali pretends to be the filmmaker to impress her. Becoming friendly with the family of the girl, Ali tells him that he is preparing a new movie, but when they uncover his true identity, he is arrested for fraud. The film reenacts the true story of the incident with Ali and the family playing themselves. So,
1: mm.
0: the reason why I picked this, again, to go back to the reason why I picked any of these films, this breaks form. So, this is... The ultimate meta film. It's fascinating. This is truly like brain breaking fascination. You know, Abbas Kiarostami is like one of the greatest directors of all time. He's he's amazing. But like, this is my favorite of his. He has like a number of them. And the reason why I say to start off with this one, um, out of his movies, is because he does dabble in meta narrative stuff. So like, films about films is like his bag. That's kind of what he does. And the fact that this is a true story, like straight up, this actually happened in mm-hmm. real life. And he decided to make a film about the family and about the guy that actually got arrested, that actually went through it. The way that it, inc- it uncovers like class, first of all, about education and class and like what that means and about like idolization, like why this person, you know, is obsessed with this certain director or, or about being him and like why other people respect the certain director how things change how how the family changes uh once they realize that that's not him and he's pretending to be someone else it's just fascinating and knowing that like everyone is also changing the way that they're acting essentially on the second pass because they're trying to like correct something that they did the first time that this happened to them Mm -hmm. it is wild like where this film goes and like what it does and what it says about creativity about being the person that where their life amounts to something and about like how people perceive you and how people perceive uh, accomplished people versus how they see someone that hasn't accomplished something and isn't famous. Fascinating. And I don't think there has ever been anything like this film and I don't think there ever will be. So highly recommend this. I think you can find it on Criterion Collection.
1: So what's next for you? Uh, Next for me, I want to shout out the film Little Miss Sunshine which is uh, the 2006 film directed by Jonathan Dayton, Valerie Ferris, written by Michael Arndt. So this is a film about the Hoovers, a dysfunctional and struggling family who embark on a road trip together to get their young daughter to a beauty pageant that she desperately wants to participate in. Uh, the reason I picked this film is, I think, you know, as with all my picks, partly sentimental or personal to me, uh, When I was in college, the one screenwriting class I took, it highlighted a little Miss Sunshine as just like one of the perfect examples mm-hmm. of, you know, a 3X structure. Like how a yeah. standard um, or classic format of a movie or any sort of story that follows a certain narrative structure, how that unfolds. And that just like stuck in my mind. And then watching this like many times over the years – I really, you know, admire the way that it's put together, the way that the mm-hmm. script uh, works, the way that the story yeah. works. And I think this is a case where it's an extremely talented cast. They mm-hmm. are putting everything they have into these performances and all if it works so well and highlights each of their strengths and the characters. This is like the perfect blend of of humor. And drama and warmth and sort of bitterness uh, also. And yeah. it's like a perfect road trip movie. Like if there, there are many in the genre and many in like the Dysfunctional Family line of movies too. But this is just like the mm-hmm. perfect encapsulation of all of those yeah. things um, with really a stellar sort of model example of a screenplay.
0: Yeah. And the, yeah, like you said, the cast is incredible and the characters are so particular and specific to which which makes it so special yeah, I lo- I love this film as well.
1: Cool. Uh what is next for you, billen Alright, so I had
0: struggle picking uh this one, but I finally landed on it. Mm-hmm. And it is Inside Lewin Davis. This is a 2013 film made by directors Joel and Ethan Cohen, uh as known as the Cohen Brothers. Mm-hmm. So they have many films that I love. They're one of my favourite directors of all time. But the reason why I picked this one is because it says something about creativity, um, and about fame as well that I found really interesting. So this um is set in 1961, New York City, and folk singer Lewin Davis, played by Oscar Isaac, is at a crossroads. Guitar in hand, he struggles against seemingly insurmountable obstacles to make a name for himself in the music world, but so far success remains elusive. Relying on the kindness of both friends and strangers, Lewin embarks on an odyssey that takes him from the streets of Greenwich Village to a Chicago club, where awaits a music mogul who could help him get a big break that he he desperately needs. So, you know, like, I think the identifier of a current brothers movie is that there is an element of satire in it where it's dark, but also funny. Um, it's flippant, but also gory. Like, there, there's, there's just like, they do such a, an amazing job of like balancing between humor and seriousness. Um, and first of all, Oscar Isaac in this is incredible. And there's also like Adam Driver is in this. Um, Carrie Mulligan is in this. You know, Justin Timberlake randomly is in this, but. <laughs> It is a film that creeps under your skin and by the time it's done, it, it devastates you so much that you kind of don't know what to do with yourself, especially as as a creative. Um, If you have a creative bone in your body, I think this will definitely speak to something where a lack of direction or a a presence of desperation and also like a feeling like you don't know if you should keep going on or not like if you should keep pursuing your creativity and like lewin davis is like at a juncture basically it's it's we meet him when he is like really low and things have not been going right for him and he's still trying to persist and he just has shit luck you know and like part of it he makes himself and part of it is a product of like the time that he's in it's just like bad luck time and place or whatever but it just says something about yeah, about like, whether or not you should just keep doing
1: this and what that says about you. Um, anyway, all right, what's, uh, what's next for you? Next up for me, I want to talk about Call Me By Your Name, which is, mm. of course, the iconic 2017 film directed by Luca Guadagnino, written by James Ivory. This is, as probably most of us know, it is a story... About one summer love between, uh, Elio, an Italian French teenager, and Oliver, the new graduate student assistant to Elio's professor father, set in 1980s Northern Italy. So this is a more recent film. It is, of course, the career, you know, launcher for Timothy Chalamet and also the last big thing the Army Hammer was in before everything about Army Hammer blew up. Um, yeah. but the first time I watched this film and in the subsequent viewing since then, it just struck me as the perfect encapsulation of this feeling, this, this atmospheric quality, which is so indelible. Like it's, it's hard yeah. to describe. It's not necessarily part, um, something that can be held so tangibly or, or mm-hmm. recreated. Um, just the feeling of being young and in love and it's summer and you're in the most beautiful place in the world. And it's, it's like a fairy tale until it's not. And then, you know, summer fades and something fades along with it. It's just that perfect encapsulation of that very feeling, that atmosphere, that vibe, I guess is how people are describing it nowadays. Um, It's pure longing and it's pure seasonal, you know, this is like a, a summer storm and, yeah. yeah, there's just something so indescribably beautiful about this film, along with being like, of course, the cinematography, like everything about it is beautiful in that way, like the the score, like everything. Um, but for me, it just hits upon that one very specific feeling yeah. and, and yeah. time and place. And it's like a combination that is so... Hard to hit upon, like, yeah, it's, it's something, yeah. it's a kind of magic that suffuses a film, and not all films have that. Yeah. It's like the
0: longing that you have when you mm-hmm. have a crush in the summer, how it is very dreamlike, you know, it all feels like very fantastical. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. This is, this is in, like incredibly accurate with how it does that. Like, I didn't grow up in Italy, like, having my summers in Italy, but. No. It still touches upon that feeling yeah. of, of, of like, kind of like desperate longing and also like, kind of how it, yeah, like how, how the sun kind of touches your skin and makes you feel like exposed in a way, you know, it's just beautiful. It's such a beautiful film.
1: All right. And what is next for you, Pelan?
0: So next up for me, I am gonna talk about The Matrix. Uh, this is my sci-fi vote in my top seven. I'm a big fan of sci-fi. Um, and this is, this is hands down my favorite. Very formative film for me. So this is the Lillian Lana Wachowski-directed uh, film, um, sci-fi film. It tells a story, if you haven't seen it for some reason, <laughs> of Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, who believes that Morpheus, played by Laurence Fishburne, an elusive figure considered to be the most dangerous man alive, he hopes that he can answer the question, what is the Matrix? Neo is contacted by Trinity, played by Carrie-Anne Moss, a beautiful stranger who leads him into an underworld where he meets... Morpheus and they fight a brutal battle for their lives against a cadre of viciously intelligent secret agents. It is a truth that could cost Neo something more precious than his life.
1: Wow. Great log. Line. <laughs>
0: great log line. Also like, dude, the first time I saw this, I was very young and I think out of all of the films I've ever seen, this is the most rewatched film. Um, mm. Just because I spent a good four years just watching and rewatching it constantly I was like, if I ever have a daughter, I'm going to call her Trinity. Like, it was like a whole fucking wow. thing. Um Yeah, <laughs> but I love this film. I love it because I think it pulls in, again, like, in terms of world building. I didn't know this then, but it was everything. It felt new to me. It felt completely fresh, but it references so much, and it pulls in and builds a new world with the references uh, that is amazing. Like, I've never seen anything like this philosophically it says something and i think that's the thing that i kept coming back to as a as a teen um as a young teen that i didn't realize that was what i was coming back for which is you know this the answering this philosophical question about like what is reality and like what is real life and what is a simulation which obviously has now been twisted and turned into something terrible by Mm -hmm. absolute dickheads but just about you know like that that question of like who are we and and how much of this is performance and how much is of this is like a performance for capitalism and like all of that so say just just a beautiful film that is narratively very very gripping um visually stunning incredible performances Keanu Reeves to me is the hottest he has ever been in this film so uh the same for Carrie Ann um I just love this film so much um you've obviously you've seen this film do you do you are you a big matrix head i feel like you either are or you're not um
1: (laughs) i gotta admit i i'm not a matrix head i have seen this film but you know your appreciation for it and your passion for it it does kind of make me want to revisit it because it's been a long time Mm. like i I saw it once when i was young and then thought it's not really for me but um maybe now like with fresh eyes and with a you know a different viewpoint and with like your sort of love for it like in the back of my mind i think oh maybe God, i please. could potentially find a new a new angle on it please do i think it's
0: incredible and i think you'd also appreciate the second film too um after after you rewatch the first one it's just like a perfect masterclass in like sequences it, it's so good it's so good like please please watch it okay. um, and then get back to me about it okay <laughs> you
1: got it Alright, uh, what's next for you? Uh, next for me is Wolf Children, which is mm. a film directed by Mamoru Hosoda, written by Satoko Kudera and Mamoru Hosoda, um, again the director. This is from 2012. It's a Japanese um, animated film. It is about a young woman named Hana who falls in love with a werewolf and then becomes a mother to two children, Yuki and Ame, who feel drawn to different halves of their nature respectively so that maybe sounds a little bit ridiculous or like very much like of course that's an anime um i mean and it's true like this is like the premise when you hear it it sounds like some sort of like why anime sort of type of thing but i found this film actually so beautiful not just visually in terms of how it's animated, the way that, um, you know, the action sequences line up. It, it's beautiful in that sense. But also just very emotionally, it is about parenting. It's about being a mother and being so afraid for your children and for the mm. different paths that they're going to take in life, like in yeah. worrying so much about how they're going to end up, but also losing them. And it's, it's funny because in this film – you know, obviously these two children, like, spoiler, in case you couldn't get it from that brief summary I, I did, but they are werewolves like their father, and they have that those two halves of them. They are both human and wolf, and, you know, each of them gets called to that different side of it. And at the end of it, you know, the, Hana, the mother, she loses both of them in a way, in very different ways, mm. but it's sort of heartbreaking, at similar ways at the same time. Um, yeah. i just thought this was a really touching unexpectedly beautiful and emotional and very poignant film about that concept of yeah. of being a mother being a parent and loving and, and losing and having to let go of your children
0: i need to see this i haven't seen it and it sounds like right up my sh-
1: right oh up my yeah alley. i think for yeah. sure um and yeah it was it surprised me honestly i i think it is like a very highly regarded and like well-received film mm-hmm. in, in japan and so yeah uh yeah maybe uh, with time it can get a little bit more of an overseas like a widespread audience even among like non-anime yeah. heads yeah all right what is next for you Helen?
0: all right next up i've got a film that is on a lot of people's lists especially if you're a screenwriter so next up is um Michael Clayton, mm-hmm. uh, directed by Tony Gilroy, written by Tony Gilroy. This was released in 2007. It tells the story of problem fixer Michael Clayton, <laughs> the titular role uh, played mm-hmm. by George Clooney, is brought in to clean up the mess after one of his law firm's top litigators suffers a breakdown while representing a corrupt chemical corporation in a multi-billion dollar legal suit. Under pressure to appease the firm's clients... Clayton finds himself torn between his desire to do the right thing and a pressing need to pay off a spiralling personal debt. You know, I think Little Miss Sunshine is definitely, like, a perfect example of, like, what a good script looks like. This is a perfect example of what a script looks like that no one can ever write again, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, straight up. This is super entertaining just as an action thriller. I would would call this a thriller, like a straight-up genre thriller, but... The first time I saw this, I think it came out in that time where like a lot of action movies were coming out, like Born Identity, Mission Impossible, Bond, like all that shit. So it it makes you feel like it's that kind of film, but it is so head and shoulders above the rest of it. I think this is my favourite George Clooney performance. Mm-hmm. Um he's so good in it. There's this like tiredness about him. This this like just had enough of the world <laughs> about him. But honestly, the the person that needs the most celebration from us is tilda swinton she is in this and she is incredible she is Mm -hmm. an incredible actress in this um this film plays with structure in a way that i still hope to one day achieve as a writer myself um and it's also the perfect tony gilroy example like we recently talked about his work on andor Mm -hmm. his whole thing is someone that is um very very good at their jobs but also very cynical which is like who who michael clayton is and what the story is about just a fantastic film like really great you can you can watch this with your parents like it's it's a dad movie for sure but it's also (laughs) like one for you too um so i highly recommend it yeah
1: yeah i actually still have never seen michael clayton which is dude i think part of me being just like not a big action thriller head, but yeah Especially after Andor, especially knowing how much you and other people love Michael Clayton. And yeah, now that I am a fan of Tony, Tony Gilroy's, I can say um, I definitely want to check this out. Oh my and, god, yeah. I will very quickly. Yeah, definitely. All um, right, what's next for you? Next, I, I gotta give a shout out to Parasite, mm. directed by Bong Joon-ho, written by Bong Joon-ho and Han Ji-won, uh, from 2019, Everyone knows this film, yeah. I think. And if you don't, you should definitely become acquainted with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're not uh, familiar with it, the the sort of brief description is that there is a very poor family in Seoul, the Kims, who scheme their way into all becoming employed under more or less false pretenses in the household of the very wealthy Park family. And that's just like the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this film is largely celebrated it won an oscar it like sort of really put bon Ho on the map of international audiences even more than he already was yeah. there are a million reasons to know and to respect and admire this film uh it's just so I, I just said i wasn't a like a thriller head and i'm still not but it's like a it's so thrilling it's so yeah. perfectly constructed and every little detail has meaning and has, yeah. you know, a greater role to play in your understanding of and your enjoyment of the film. Yeah, It's, it's just a, such a naked portrait of class and class disparity yeah. and the lengths that that drives people to go to under this very terrible system yeah. um, of, you know, class disparity, capitalism, mm. all of those things. And I think it's In the years since, like, it's become, like, a reference point, almost. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sometimes a a meme or the subject of jokes or, like, a shorthand. Like, when you want to talk about, like, capitalism or complain about capitalism or, like, how out of touch some people are being or the class differences. Like, this is a very easy shorthand in a way that almost... um, Sometimes it's... it's, Some people see it as a cliche, almost, the way that Mm. Parasite is brought up and referenced over and over again. But I think that is really because it touched so many people and viewers in a way that is just like unprecedented in a way. Like they, maybe a lot of these people that these audiences, these international audiences, they weren't aware of these kinds of machinations of capitalism and and class differences, or they weren't aware of the level to which this is perpetuated. Not only, you know, in the U S but also Korea very specifically in a, in a very particular way to the the nature of Korean society. Um, it really touched, you know, a nerve and it struck a chord. I think that is for very good reason. Yeah, for sure. It's a film that, like, I don't, you know, I've, I've only rewatched it a couple of times and it's never like a, it's not a pleasant watch by any no. means. I don't sink into it the way that I luxuriate in some other movies that I really enjoy. Yeah, yeah. But it's one that is truly unforgettable and just like a masterclass of, of craft. And I think it is such, a great film that belongs in the canon which you know thankfully has been enshrined in the canon in in different ways um and i think that's well deserved
0: yeah i mean what you said about like this being something that pricked everyone's understanding of like class differences this happens all the time in cinema like classes are very very like common theme that a lot of filmmakers mm-hmm. go back to For to sure. kind of like but the, I, the the reason why i think this was important is just that we needed a reminder and i think this was an excellent film to remind everyone of like Having a little bit of class consciousness where they realize not just the financial discrepancies between classes, but the psychological discrepancies too. I think recently someone said something about like, why don't we make films about like poor people? Um, and uh, a- as opposed to like focusing so much on rich people and how terrible they are. And someone responded to that saying, I think Parasite was also about the poor, like the effects uh the, the negative effects on on the working class was like in Parasite like, too, which I completely agree. Like there's there's an element of like what class differences does to both of these uh, classes, you know, whether it's working class or upper class. Um, so next up for me, I am going to talk about Persona, which is the 1966 film by the iconic Ingmar Bergman. So this tells a story of famed stage actress Elizabeth Fogler, played by Liv Ullman. She suffers a moment of blankness during a performance on stage and the next day lapses into a total silence. Advised by her doctor to take time off to recover from what appears to be an emotional breakdown, Elizabeth goes to a beach house in the Baltic Sea with only Anna, B.B. Anderson, um, a nurse, as company. Over the next several weeks, as Anna struggles to reach her mute patient, the two women find themselves experiencing a strange emotional convergence. So this is a, this is a Swedish film. It's 1966. It's in black and white. Hard sell, I think, for a lot of people that aren't major cinema heads. But I think the reason why this is in my top seven is because I was astounded that this film was made in 1966. I was astounded that it was made at all. Not because it was bad, but because it was so risque. <laughs> and like it says something about female friendship and female bond and connection. That I don't think a lot of filmmakers now are brave enough to say. I think there's something that it reaches into with regards to like w- what happens when you put two women or like two, two different kinds of women in a house together and leave them alone. Um, and what does that do to them both psychologically, especially to uh, the character of the nurse? You know, um, there's, there's certain parts of it that feel so like outside the the realm of uh normalcy outside the realm of what's accepted societally you know and I think the fact that you know Ingmar Bergman's a man uh but that this is this is to me like one of the best films about female friendships and, and female bonding um that I've ever seen and it's quite dark so just just a heads up it's it's not a fun time it is very um it, it stares into the crevices of of the ugliness of humans basically and like brings it up um so i lo- I love this film this is incredible again, like every person that I've shown out of my friends that have seen this they're like, holy shit this was made in 1966 are you kidding me like the fact that it was so like to us now it feels so groundbreaking and the fact that it was done like so long ago just incredible just fascinating so yeah that's uh mm-hmm. I think you can also find this on Criterion.
1: um so yeah. What's next for you, Jenny? Next, I'm going to talk briefly about Nomadland, which we did discuss on a previous episode of this podcast. So if you want our thoughts in full, you can uh, look in our archives and take a listen to that. Yeah, Uh, This is a film directed by Chloe Zhao, uh, released in 2020. This was really a watershed career moment for Chloe Zhao, um, you know, Oscars all around. Yes. And the premise is that um, Fern, a widow, loses her job when her plant shuts down, and she becomes a nomad who then wanders across the country in her car, picking up seasonal work here and there, but otherwise pretty much committing to the nomadic wandering lifestyle that a lot of yeah. similar people in – especially sort of lower economic straits like working class um, have also committed to throughout the years. Yeah. So when I first saw this film, you know, back a few years ago, I think at the time I saw it, my immediate reaction was just like, this is one of my favorite things that I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people felt similarly, it was really lauded, there has been more of a reflection, I think, in the in the couple of years since this film came out on like, okay, you know, did it tell the story, you know, in a way that is accurate or, or, you know, reflective of reality, or is, like, Chloe Zhao the right person to get into this? You know, I'm not going to necessarily disregard all of that stuff, but I will say, like, ultimately, I found this film extremely powerful, extremely moving, extremely stirring. Every single emotion that could be elicited, yeah. like, it, it elicited it. And I thought... It was just one of the most um astounding pieces of cinema I'd seen Same. in in a long time, in years. Uh and I think it holds up because of that. I think that is a legacy that it should continue to have. Yeah um it captures the soul of America in a way, in not yes. even, you know, flattering way. Of course not. The yeah. soul of America is <laughs> some might say like really rotten and really desperate and really terrible uh to a lot of people in a lot of ways and it really touches on that so uncannily and in a way that is like so indicative of chloe Zhao's sort of ability to sink into her subjects to sink into whatever she's trying to say like the reason she has made such a wide you know she she delves into these different communities and these different strains Mm -hmm. and um like niches and groups and subcultures and i don't even see it so much as like you know gawking at them or just being like um sort of fly by but she really gets into the heart and soul of these communities and these people yeah. no matter you know a wide range let's forget about the Eternals, like whatever but yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, i think she is just such a talent and this is really the the first glimpse i had of that
0: no i mean with with me i, I still love this film and i think upon reflection the reason why I love it, obviously, is she's an incredible filmmaker, she's an incredible director, she is married to her cinematographer, who is also excellent, and the way that she depicts the landscape of America, and how, again, like this this, uh, this system of capitalism that has essentially like forgotten and discarded of Fern, and people like Fern, just the way that you know, that, that juxtaposition between the land and the, the economic system that is so ill-fitting to it, um, it's so stark here. And, and and if you look for it, you'll see it. You know, you'll you'll see how she's trying to tell that story. And I love films about, like, female loneliness. I think there's, there's something really philosophically, uh, something that touches me deep within myself um, about that. As someone that, you know, <laughs> has depression, you know, it is something that... I think about all the time, and the fact that you see it through Fern and her peace with it. Um, yeah, it's just it, this is an incredible film still to this day. Like genuinely, one of the best films about America, I think that you can watch.
1: All right, Pelin, what is the last film on your list of seven?
0: All right, so all this chat about America, I have to give it give it up for my uh my home country, England. Um, yeah, I had to pick a, a British film, uh, and it was really tough, and I really wanted to pick from a British female filmmaker because I love them so much and they're so excellent. So this one is fish tank. This is the 2009 film by Andrea Arnold. This tells the story of Mia played by Katie Jarvis, a rebellious teenager on the verge of being kicked out of school. Her hard partying mother, Joanna played by Kirsten Waring, neglects Mia's welfare in favor of her own. Uh, And her younger sister who's played by Rebecca Griffiths hangs out with a much older crowd. Sparks fly between Mia and Connor, played by Michael Fassbender. Uh, Connor is Joanne's new boyfriend. It's it's Mia's mum's new boyfriend. And he encourages Mia to pursue her interest in dance. As the boundaries of their relationship become blurred, Mia and Joanne compete for Connor's affection. Um, I think that last line is a little bit misleading. uh, But I will say this is a coming-of-age film set in the working-class East London, like where I grew up. And Andrew Arnold is famous for... Her like verité style, like shaky camera, real raw close ups on the face, and obviously because she grew up working class herself, she does a lot of films about the working class, about working class subjects um, and characters, and, and female characters for sure. She recently did one called American Honey, which is you know set in America. So I saw this as like 2009. I was like what, like twenty. Um, this was my first understanding of like what. It means to A, be a female filmmaker, to show a female subject going through something that is distinctly uncomfortable about what it means to be a girl growing up and having feelings about someone that you shouldn't have. And also being placed in a very adult world and realizing actually that you are the mature one <laughs> and having to like figure out a way to take care of yourself. Um, I love Mike Lee. I think I love Ken Loach. Um, you can see their, their, influences on andrew arnold here but she makes it distinctly hers because she you know again she was a young woman once um yeah
1: so the last film i'm gonna talk about uh to bring it back to hayao miyazaki who is really just uh looms large in my mind of just like filmmakers who have really influenced and and changed my life i think Mm -hmm. princess mononoke uh this is his film from 1997 it is a fantasy film, again, like many many of his works, but it is set in almost the real world, like a fantastical version of a historical period. So it's set in the late Muromachi period of Japan. A young, cursed uh, emishi prince named Ashitaka, he becomes embroiled in a war between forest gods and industrializing humans who are encroaching upon and destroying the forest. So this film is very adult. It is not a film that I think can be easily watched by a lot of children, like mm-hmm. Spirited Away or a lot of, yeah. or a lot of Miyazaki's more popular international films like, like Ponyo or Kiki's Delivery Service yeah. or other films like that. This is a, a very violent film. There's a lot of uh, stark, you know, violence depicted on screen, yeah. albeit in animation form, but it's still very striking in adult themes. And it's a little more complex. I think it's, the epitome of like legend, like this is an epic. This yeah. is like a an old legendary epic. It creates a world that is based in part or inspired in part on you know real historical periods, real peoples. Like the the M C group is a real minority. The way that some of this industrialization and steel working. Like it did unfold this way in history, uh, but of course there is the added element of gods and demons, and you know, wolves the size of, of of bulls or horses, and children raised by wolves, and it's it has all of those elements drawn in here because that is what Miyazaki loves. He loves to flesh out a world that is so unique and magical and dangerous like this world is really thrilling but dangerous at times Mm. it captures the nuance of both of these sides of this like classic struggle of human you know man versus nature it adds dimensions to both of those sides and paints it in more than black and white and uh, I think the score by Joe Hisaishi is just one of the most beautiful I've ever heard like in in history of movie compositions and scores like this is really up there and it just has a such such a beautiful old world legendary mythical quality to the to the film and i think it is uh, again it's about heroics and good and evil and and triumphing and what side you sort of take in the battle but it's about more than that too and this is just really one if you if you're going to watch like films by hayao miyazaki I think this is definitely one of them that should be on the list and it has been recognized as well, like in the Canon. Um, but yeah, if you haven't watched this film, I highly, highly recommend it. Yeah. Well, I think that is it for us that those are our top seven films respectively yeah. in no particular order. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pellin has a longer list. I, do. um, I don't know. Maybe we can include even more of it in the newsletter. So yeah. check out the newsletter. Criticism is for a little more and then maybe Pelin will be able to house the whole list somewhere else. So you can hit her up if you want to see all of the yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll stick it there and
0: it'll probably show up in my social somewhere for the retweets. So
1: yeah. Yeah. Um Just a note, we are off next week, but we will be returning the week of the succession <laughs> premiere. Yeah. And I guess some... Cool news we can preview is that we are going to be doing something special for Succession. Mm-hmm. We're going to be kicking off some mini episodes after each week's episode yeah. for this final season. It's yeah, like a little recap. So that is something. Yeah. Yeah. A little recap, little reaction. Basically, like, you know, an abbreviated version of what you might get for a, a full, like, season yeah, breakdown here. Yeah. Um, but we d- will definitely be covering the full season as well as just, like, our overall yeah. thoughts on the series and the conclusion of the series as, as it comes to yeah. an end. Um, so that's something you can look forward to. We'll be releasing them as, like, separate little episodes, yeah. um, still in this feed. So you can, you know, choose to follow along with us if you'd yeah. like. We wanted to give it, um,
0: Succession is obviously like a royalty on this podcast. It's one of our favorite shows of all time. And we just wanted to give it a, you know, a good little farewell send off tour. Uh, because we're going to be sad when it's over but we do want to savor this final season as much as we can
1: definitely we're going to milk it (laughs) yeah and if you are watching anything else that
0: you think we should check out in the coming weeks please let us know at criticismisdead at gmail.com or you can at us or dm us at criticismisdead on twitter and instagram all one word for extended show notes including links to everything that we've been talking about where to watch the films that we just talked about too um plus yeah my long list please subscribe to our newsletter criticismisdead.substack.com. as always thank you so much for listening please rate and review us on apple podcast with five stars and tell a friend about us we have reached a 100 episodes i am so happy to do this with you jenny thank you so much and we will see you the week after next bye bye Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin keskin Lou and Jenny Chishong. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Liu.